2 Samuel, now we're in chapter 13, verse 1. You tell me, what is wrong with this picture? So it came to pass after this that Absalom, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, we'll come back to him. The son of David had a fair sister. Absalom's a handsome guy. He's got long, wavy hair. In fact, it describes it in other places about the weight of his hair whenever he trimmed it once a year. So it, it comes that this Absalom, whom David fathered by another woman, he looks upon his fair sister Tamar, whom David fathered by another woman, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So we've got, excuse me, Absalom and Tamar are fathered by the same, same woman, to the same woman. But we've got another man who's fathered by a different woman, Amnon. He looks upon Tamar and he says, what's wrong with this picture? They had different moms. Amnon legally could have sought the hand of Tamar in marriage. You can read that down in verse 14. But like you, even Amnon thought, you know, this is just a little too weird. So he kind of holds off. But this son, Amnon, had been with David from the beginning of all of his children. Amnon was the firstborn. So he's seen all the others come along. So he's older, kind of distant, not a direct relationship. Amnon had a crafty cousin. Verse 3, and he had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, cousin. Jonadab was a very subtle, crafty fellow. And he said unto him, why art thou being the king's son, lean from day to day? You're not eating. You're the king's son. I mean, what are you sad about? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said unto him, Well, you lay down and be, play like you're sick in bed. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. And this is exactly what Amnon does. And the result was that Amnon rapes his sister, verse 11. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, don't force me to do this. No such thing ought to be done in Israel, not this folly. And I wither shall I cause my shame to go. So I, there's, there's going to be great shame. And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. That's, that's speaking truth. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me. See, there's still this opportunity. Legally, we could be married if that's what you desire. And adding insult to injury, look at verse 16. After this occasion, Tamar sends her away and said unto him, there's no cause. Why are you doing this that you would send me away? Why would you treat me like this? But he would not hearken unto her, sends her away in shame. May I just pause to say, every sexual relationship that is not based upon trust, love will end like this. 
So fathers of daughters, grandparents with children coming along, young ladies, hear me clearly. That boy will not love you more if you do what he wants. He will only ever think less of you. That's the truth. That's what happens here, and it'll still happen. Don't tell me it'll be different in your life. Of God, it has been cursed. It will bring a curse in your life. But of course, Tamar, she wasn't one that gave in. This was rape. She was raped, and by the end of verse 20, Tamar is living a lonely life in the home of her good friend, her kind brother Absalom. Their father David was angry, as you might imagine. For two years, he's angry. What did he say to Amnon? Nothing. We just know that dad is mad. And apparently he never did anything to comfort Tamar either. And so, verse 27, Tamar's closest brother Absalom gets together with all of his other brothers during the time of sheep shearing. And Absalom, this kind, gentle soul who's so angry with what Amnon has done, murders his brother. 2 Samuel, chapter 13, go down to verse 28. So now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, so we're going to get him a little tipsy, and when I say unto you, smite Amnon, then kill him, fear not, I have commanded you. Be courageous and valiant, and the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon, as Absalom has commanded, then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat himself upon his mule, and every one of them fled. The king's nephew Jonadab, the one who started the whole thing, remember his crafty cousin, he goes and reports the thing to David of what has happened to Amnon. And furthermore, he says, and Absalom is the one that connived it all. Verse 32. Verse 36, David and all of his sons mourn now for this dead son. But Absalom, he's nowhere to be found. And so we read now about a son's rebellion and mutiny. We hear nothing more about the dead son, but for the next three years, David mourns every day for his missing son, Absalom. By the end of chapter 14, Absalom is permitted to return home. So the message goes out, Absalom's ready to go home. Somebody else is working behind the scenes, and he says, come home sooner than later. We'll see how that fits in. And Absalom's tragic rebellion, chapter 15 now, Verse 4, and Absalom said, Moreover, oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. I will rule more fairly, more justly than my father. And it was so that when any man came nigh unto him to do obeisance, he put forth his hand, he took, kissed him, and on this, it sounds like a politician, right? And on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel away from his father David. Absalom was a handsome politician. He told people what they wanted to hear. He was shaking hands. He was kissing babies. He was making promises. 
And as a result, he was stealing away hearts from the king, his father, David. Verse 12. <coughs> the conspiracy is so strong, the people are increasing with Absalom. More and more people are following Absalom. Verse 13. And there came a messenger to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are after following after Absalom. David flees with his family for fear that Absalom might come. Now, I don't think David ever ran from a fight. So when you read that, don't, don't think for a second David is afraid to fight. What David is afraid of doing is if Absalom, this beautiful son of his, would come to destroy his family, he in self-defense might end up doing what? Killing his own son, Absalom, as a result. Chapter 17. David receives inside information about Absalom's plan. Chapter 18, David organizes his army against Absalom, but he gives specific advice or instructions concerning his son. Chapter 18, down in verse 5, And the king commanded Joab, the general Joab, the general that's been with him from the time of his, his uh, deceit with Bathsheba, so he says unto Joab, and to Abishai, and to Ataiah, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. During the ensuing battle, a total of 20,000 of Absalom's men were slain. He flees for his life on the back of a mule through the thick woods of Ephraim. Do you know this part of the story? Yeah, some of you do. Remember, you've got to imagine with me now. We got, we've got this beautiful young Absalom with his long... Are you with me? Some of you are not sure. He's got this long hair waving as he's bouncing. And it's not a horse. This is a mule. And he's bouncing up and down on the back of this mule through these thick woods. And his hair, do you know the story? Gets caught on a tree. And a stupid mule just keeps on running. He's left hanging there by his hair, but very much alive. Well, to make a long story very short, a political enemy. Joab, remember this name, we come back to again. We've seen him before, he puts three darts. Do you remember the instruction that David gave him? But he puts three darts into Absalom's heart. And still he's struggling. And so his ten personal attendants come along and he gives them instructions to finish the job, bury him in a, in a deep pit, cover him with a pile of stones. The news comes to David by courier and the king, chapter 18 and verse 3. 2 Samuel 18, verse, no, verse 33, verse 33. And the king was so moved, and he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son, you've heard this, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. My beautiful, beautiful son, Absalom, Tamar's loved brother, would to God I had died for thee, 
O Absalom, my son, my son. This, my friend, is the familiar cry of every father who has lost the heart of his child. And may I just say that capturing the heart of your child is the most important job, the most difficult job, and it's the most important job that you'll have as a father. As a grandparent, you see the child, you, you be a part of that process to try to capture the heart of that child for the Lord. That's your most important, your most important task. You cannot do this from a distance. You can't work hard and provide money so that others might do your job for you. Indulging them will not make it less painful. You must discipline them. What the Lord requires of every young man or woman is clearly found. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You know this verse, perhaps. He's shown you exactly what the Lord requires of you. What is it? To do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. Teach your children to walk justly, love mercy, and humbly with your God. Absalom, the good brother, was rebellious, and he walked away from the Lord. You know, you fast forward this to 1 Kings 1, and we could jump ahead to 1 Kings 1 Kings chapter 1, and now King David is an old man. So we've seen this young family. We've seen the sword. He set his house on fire by way of these relationships, uh, in particular with Bathsheba. David is now old and stricken in years. Then Adonijah, son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I'll be king. So David is failing. He's older. Who's going to be king? Adonijah says, well, you know, I could do this job. And this introduces us to Adonijah's thwarted mutiny. The mighty men of David would not follow the mutiny, however. Chapter 1, 1 Kings chapter 1, down in verse 8. But Zadok the priest, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, there he is again, and Re and the mighty men which belonged to David, They didn't follow Adonijah. They weren't part of this mutiny. But look who helps in the mutiny. And you'll see a familiar name. Look at verse 7. It should be familiar to you. Who is conferred with? Joab. You remember this name? This is his most trusted general from the days when he cheated with Bathsheba. You remember that story? This is when David gave Joab orders to let Bathsheba's husband go to the front of the line. Do you remember this? You thought you saw this in a movie, and here it is actually in the Bible. And when he goes to the front of the line and faces the enemy, what did he tell Joab to do? Draw all the other men back. Let Joab be slain. Or let the the husband be slain. And, And in that, it's going to cover up you know, this thing that I had with Bathsheba, and she's pregnant now, and it's a whole deal, and this will just let us be together. Well, Joab is the general, the trusted general. He had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered. Joab told the king he was an embarrassment to Israel. 
Joab is the one that murdered David's temporary appointment to head up the army. And the last thing we read in 2 Samuel, all the way over in chapter 24, is David forcing Joab to do something that he doesn't think is on his pay scale. Like, you know, that's beneath me. So he's, he's just not liking David. And now Joab helps in the mutiny led by Adonijah. They declare martial law without the king's knowledge. Bathsheba goes into the king to tell David of Adonijah's mutiny. Tells of Joab's role. And for fear of her life and her son Solomon. And that's in chapter 1 all the way down through verse 31. While she's talking with the king, remember the old prophet Nathan? The old priest? Nathan comes in, he independently confirms the story about the uprising. As a result, chapter 1 down in verse 30, David says, i got to get on with business. And so he now says, Solomon shall reign after me. He shall sit upon the throne in my stead. Because everybody's wondering, who's going to be in charge next? Even so, will I certainly do this day. So he's got to get on with business. He's got to appoint his son if he's got any chance of holding on to the kingdom. Solomon is anointed king by the priest. They blow a trumpet, the towers of the palace, and all the royal decree goes out. And all the fair weather friends of Adonijah, who thought they were going to lead in this mutiny, they want to be a political friend, they now run in panic. And by the end of chapter 1, Adonijah himself is afraid for his life. So, David, now chapter 2, verse 10, slept with his father, so he's died, and was buried in the city of David. And the days of David reigned over Israel were 40 years. Seven years reigned he in Hebron, 30, years and three, 30 and 3 years in Jerusalem. And soon after his death, then Solomon sat upon the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. Now Adonijah shows up. This is Adonijah, who thought he was going to lead a rebellion against King David. Adonijah shows up because he thinks, well, David was a man of war. Solomon's not a man of war, right? So maybe Solomon will have some sympathy. You think so? You think? Chapter 2, verse 23. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do unto me, and, so, and more so also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. And now, therefore, as the Lord liveth, which has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me in house as he has promised, Adonijah shall be put to death this very day. What about that traitor Joab? Remember the general? Verse 31, And the king said unto him, Do as, as he hath said, and fall upon him, and bury him, that thou mayest take away the innocent blood which Joab shed from me and from the house of my father. Finally, one carryover from King Saul, Shimei, I read of earlier, whom David had pardoned. But he was a complainer. The whole way through, he's a complainer. And now he's also killed chapter 2. So with all of those who led in the mutiny of the king, they're all now dead. Now Solomon is to take charge. The kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon forever. Chapter 3, verse 5. The Lord appears in Gibeon to Solomon in a dream by night. Remember this? 
And God says to Solomon, ask what I shall give you. As if to say, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. This isn't a genie in a bottle with three wishes and you can outdo one or the other. This is one ask. And whatever you ask, I'm going to give it to you. Remember what he asked for? What was it? Wisdom. Wisdom. And so the son's request, we see. But with the request comes materialism. You'll see how that works together. Almost apart from one another. He asked it with a sense of humility, but notice the ambition of his request. So chapter 3, we're still there. Verse 7. And now the Lord my God, thou hast made me servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in. I just don't have any answers. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing, and that's exactly what he gets, wisdom. Solomon clearly prayed for wisdom. But notice even in the request, this wisdom that comes over time, and the reason I say it comes over time is because while he's got answers, it seems like he himself doesn't even understand until you go over to the Song of Solomon. That's, that's where he's, the sorrow and the true nature of his life comes out in the Song of Solomon. Make no mistake about it, Solomon's initial request is for political wisdom. At the end of verse 9, what's he want to do? He wants to judge. He wants to be able to judge this great people. He wants to be a political leader. Let me read from you from J. Vernon McGee. This is an old guy, right? Dead, gone. And he writes in a political nature about this way before any political season that we live in. And here's what he wrote. In the sickening scene in every government today, we see a group of men clamoring for positions. They want to be elected to an office. All of them are telling us how great they are and what marvelous abilities they have. They assure us that they are able to solve the world's problems. By now, some of us have come to the conclusion that their ambitious spirit is just kidding us. They don't have the solution and they don't have the wisdom. If only some men some man, some person would come on the scene and say, I don't have the wisdom. I recognize my inadequacies, but I'm going to depend upon God to lead and guide. My friend wrote J. Vernon McGee. Something like that would rock our world. Give us a leader whose view of the Almighty Creator will keep him humble enough that we may lead, as he says in 1 Timothy, a quiet and peaceable life in all honesty and godliness. It was a great day for Israel. Solomon is commended for his request in verse 12. And then to help Solomon carry out such a political will, we read of Solomon's abundance and materialism. And I remind you, and you're reminded, at what is the root of all evil. Chapter 3, verse 13 and I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. Why such honor and riches? 
It's so that the world would now pay attention and see what God has done. In fact, you may remember that the Queen of Sheba, it's referenced in Matthew, but the Queen of Sheba comes to confirm the greatness. I've heard of the greatness of Solomon, and I want to come see it for myself. And she says this familiar phrase, the half has not been told. That comes from the Queen of Sheba. It's even greater than she could have imagined. I believe that the one overriding purpose for the wealth and prosperity of this nation, that is Israel, was so that God could get everyone's attention and tell them the truth. Now fast forward to America. The most prosperous nation in all the world. I believe the reason for prosperity has been the spreading of the gospel. And you cannot deny the fact that we have been the great spreaders, not of democracy, but of the gospel. The world has come to our doorstep, and so long as we use our advantage to advance the gospel, I think America will prosper. But the danger lies at the root of all evil, doesn't it? It's the same prosperity that undermined the religious fervor in Israel. In fact, it even changed their national identity. Don't think for a moment that it won't happen in America. In fact, Solomon brought an emphasis on material gain. Even in direct opposition to his father's spiritual insight, he built the most fabulous temples for God that the world had ever seen. But spiritually, he bankrupted a nation. His wealth grew, so too did his view of himself. In the beginning, Solomon said, of thy great nation. By the time you get to the end of Solomon's life, he's saying, of my great people. It's gone to his head. His ambitious building program impoverished his nation through taxes and labor until after his death the nation is divided and fell into ruin and captivity. Can we say America is far behind? The influence of church has been supplanted by the government. The mantra, follow your Bible, has been replaced with follow the science. In God we trust was added to our currencies during the time of the great revivals of the late 1800s. Then we took that to ourselves as a nation. We say, in God we trust, in the 50s, when everybody was coming home from war and peace and prosperity, and we're all super excited, and churches are exploding, in God we trust. But that influence is quickly fading. It may surprise you to know that while David leaps from the printed page as contemporary as any leader we know, Solomon, the wealthiest king, the greatest king of all that Solomon ever did, you know it to be true. But for a long time in history, Solomon was doubted as a great king. Everything Solomon did was evidently lost in the desert sands. We know not too much about Solomon. We're learning more and things are being found. Solomon, in spite of all his material wealth, only remains as a shadowy part of history. 
There is, in fact, less archaeological proof of Solomon's reign than any other notable king. In fact, there was a time that much of Solomon's greatness was in question. What will history record of the most prosperous nation the world has ever known? Knowing that nothing is said of national America in prophecy of the end times. We're going to finish up Revelation. I dare you to find anything about the greatness of America come the end of time. Reminds you of that little poem, right? Only one life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Benjamin Franklin said, Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of it fulfilling a vacuum, it creates one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles and triples that want in another way, wrote Benjamin Franklin. Solomon said, by the wisdom of his own experience, better is a little with fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with therewith. The lives of all these children of David, the lives of all our children, are collectively revealing the hidden treasure of 